0: Good evening, I'm Kate France. And I'm Tabby Tyler. Tonight we talk about the deinstitutionalization of mental health care facilities in the United States. So grab a beverage,
1: it's time for a night in.
0: So I've been preoccupied of late with a story that a friend of mine told me. And it's definitely kind of been on my mind nonstop since she told me. Um, she has a child about my daughter's age. And she had what she described as the scariest moment of in her parenting experience thus far. Mm-hmm. She was taking her daughter to school. And like most schools now, they have two sets of doors uh, that basically one you can just get in and then the other has a lock that you have to have an ID for or a key fob or a pass card, whatever. So she goes through the first set of doors and in behind her slips this guy who is clearly not supposed to be there he's not wearing a shirt he's smoking a cigarette he stinks he is dirty and um you know she described him as very obviously homeless and his eyes were very disconnected you know just kind of a a, a glazed sort of expression and she's freaked out because she's now kind of trapped in a very small space with this man with her child and he starts trying to coerce her into unlocking the doors to get into the main body of this, the preschool. And, you know, he's yelling at her. She's arguing with him. She threatens to call the police. He can see that the principal or, or, or you know, receptionist at the school is calling the police right now. He can see people in the parking lot are on their phones. And so he rushes out the door, ultimately is detained by the police and arrested for trespassing. And he's described by everyone there as clearly mentally ill or heavily inebriated, but he wasn't making much sense. And it just, the man was not violent in any way. He wasn't brandishing a weapon, but he, you know, and we can't really understand his intent because they couldn't understand him. Mm-hmm. But it makes you think about people put in this situation mm-hmm. and the amount of homeless people and mentally ill people who are not cared for in this country who end up in this sort of space where they become someone we fear.
1: Yeah. It's interesting you address the connection between individuals with mental illness and ...and individuals who are homeless because homelessness has been on the rise in the last few decades. One reason being deinstitutionalization.
0: Which is the dissolution of state hospitals that housed and cared for the mentally ill.
1: Exactly. And of course, institutions were not without their own flaws. There are decades of documented abuse against those who were housed in institutions... ...and often who were admitted and stripped of their human rights and their ability to advocate for themselves... I mean, in the 1800s, women who deigned to have an opinion were often considered mentally ill and could be involuntarily involuntarily committed by their husbands.
0: A great example from here in the U.S. is Elizabeth Parsons Ware Packard, which is quite the name, but Mm -hmm. she's quite the lady. In 1839, she married Calvinist minister Theophilus Packard, a man 14 years older than her and described as cold and domineering. They had six children. She put in that work. Mm. And after many years of marriage, Elizabeth Packard began outwardly questioning her husband's beliefs and expressing opposing opinions. They disagreed about religion, child rearing, family finances, and the issue of slavery. With Elizabeth defending John Brown in the, quote, presence of rich pro-slavery practitioners, unquote, which embarrassed her husband. An unforgivable sin. In Illinois, at that time, a husband could have his wife committed without either a public hearing or her consent. In 1860, Theophilus Packard decided that his wife was, quote, slightly insane, unquote, and decided to have Elizabeth committed. She learned of this decision on June 18, 1860, when the county sheriff arrived to take her into custody. Elizabeth spent the next three years at the Jacksonville Insane Asylum despite regular pressure by her doctor, she refused to agree that she was insane or to change her religious views. In June 1863, in part due to pressure from her children who wanted her released, the doctor stated that she was incurable and discharged her. The I el- just think it's funny, sorry,
1: that they said she was incurable, so they let her go.
0: Yeah, like they like, can't, like we, lost we can't rehabilitate this one. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. She's still a Put feminist. Put her out in the world. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, um so they discharge her theophilus then locked her in the nursery of their home <laughs> and nailed the windows shut oh
1: my god
0: elizabeth managed to drop a letter out the window which her friend then delivered to judge charles Starr, who scheduled a jury trial to allow a legal determination of elizabeth's sanity to take place Ultimately, Elizabeth Packard was judged sane, though only by luck when a psychiatrist, Dr. Duncanson, interviewed Elizabeth and he testified to the court that, while not necessarily in agreement with all her religious beliefs, he argued that, quote, I do not call people insane because they differ with me. I pronounce her a sane woman and wish we had a nation of such women. Bless. Yes. No, Dr. Duncanson... Very good guy. We like him. Recognizing her luck, Packard went on to become an advocate for those wrongfully institutionalized and for equal rights to property and parental custody for women.
1: She also went on to write a number of books that become increasingly bizarre in title. In 1864, Marital Power Exemplified, or Three Years' Imprisonment for Religious Belief, In 1865, Great Disclosures of Spiritual Wickedness in High Places. In 1866, The Mystic Key, or The Asylum, Secret Unlocked. And then finally in 1868, And the Prisoner's Hidden Life, or Insane Asylums Unveiled.
0: I love how many of these titles have ors in them.
1: I know. It's like a choose-your-own-adventure book.
0: But... Even with increasing awareness about individuals' rights, there continued to be a pervasive stigma around mental illness and disabilities. Enter Rosemary Kennedy.
1: Rosemary Kennedy was the oldest daughter of Joe and Rose Kennedy and sister to President John Kennedy. She was born with complications that may have ultimately led to her learning disabilities, seizures, and emotional instability. Prone to outbursts, she was deemed an embarrassment and possible risk to the political careers of Joe Kennedy's sons, so he made the decision when she was 23 to have her lobotomized. While conscious, Rosemary was operated on until she could no longer speak. She was wheelchair-bound for the rest of her life, and upon her father's orders, institutionalized, and had no visitors for years until 1961, when her siblings were made aware of her location
0: following her father's stroke. And unfortunately, this was the lens through which people saw institutions, as places where individuals were not in control of their own fates.
1: We're going to take a quick break.
0: Hey, what's that you're drinking?
1: Uh, well, you poured it for me. (laughs) (laughs) You poured me about an inch of stoke coffee. Stoke coffee? (laughs) Stoke coffee, which is exactly what I asked for. I'm one of those inch of fluid people. (laughs) Whereas I go for a full glass of all my caffeinated beverages. (laughs) Regardless, the point is, we need coffee to get through this. And uh, if you're looking for coffee to get through whatever you're
0: trying to get through, we recommend Stoke. It's an iced coffee that comes in unsweetened, slightly sweet, and protein varieties. I prefer the unsweetened variety.
1: I love slightly sweet. And your husband loves the protein one. So there's something for everyone. (laughs) So enjoy a nice cup of iced stout coffee. This message was definitely not paid for by stoke coffee. <laughs> Deinstitutionalization began in the 1950s, galvanized by the creation of antipsychotic medication the stigmatization of mental health institutions and economic incentives further bolstered by the creation of Medicare and Medicaid a decade later. The concept of institutionalization began to fall out of favor mid-century following the progress of mental health treatment during World War II. The assessment and treatment of soldiers in acute care settings indicated that mental health conditions could possibly be treated in outpatient community centers rather than in long-term care institutions. Medications to treat mental illness were also showing promise, which further motivated states to reconsider long-term care for the mentally ill. With the advent of Medicare and Medicaid, states also found a way to decrease the expenditure of providing care for the mentally ill by transitioning patients into other care settings, such as nursing homes or general hospitals, that received federal funding. This allowed the states, who were responsible for paying for the costs of state hospitals, to decrease the cost of caring for the severely mentally ill. However, this
0: led to a massive transinstitutionalization. Transinstitutionalization is the migration of patients with mental illness from one care facility to another, be it a general hospital, a nursing home, a shelter, or even in some cases, the prison system. As the cost of mental health care increased at the federal level,
1: mental health awareness became a political talking point.
0: Largely from the influence of his wife, Jimmy Carter made mental health a priority when he was the governor of Georgia, and then when president, he created the Presidential Commission on Mental Health. This commission was a diverse board of community representatives, social workers, and yet only three active psychiatrists. The board was responsible for producing a report that emphasized a need for improvement on community-based care. President Carter would then use this report to help form the Mental Health Care Systems Act.
1: And this was important because according to an article from the U.S. National Library of Medicine, quote, By the 1970s, the mental health system contained a bewildering variety of institutions, short-term mental hospitals, state and federal long-term institutions, nursing homes, residential care facilities, community mental health centers, outpatient departments, general hospitals, community care programs, community residential institutions for the mentally ill with different designations in different states, (laughs) and uh, client-run and self-help services, amongst others. Uh, This disarray and lack of any unified structure of insurance coverage or service integration forced many patients with serious mental illnesses to survive in homeless shelters, on the streets,
0: and even in jails and prisons. I mean, imagine trying to... (laughs) <laughs> Imagine trying to make sense of that. Yeah. And when you're desperate or in need. I just read that and I don't actually understand what I just read. <laughs> <laughs> but this is what Carter's policies were trying to address and the results were multifaceted. For one, it drew attention to the limitation of representation of individuals affected by mental health disorders. The panels were an opportunity to bring attention to factors affecting mental health, such as poverty, sexism, racism, stigmatization, and drug dependence, as well as how certain individuals were more likely to experience mental health illness given their circumstance.
1: There was also heightened awareness about discriminatory practices and legislation. On the other hand... Individuals suffering from severe and chronic mental illness benefited less from deinstitutionalization and often, often suffered more from transinstitutionalization, resulting in homelessness, unstable living environments, prison sentences, and repeat hospitalizations. Another unfortunate result of Jimmy Carter's policies was the eventual decrease in community health-based funding uh, that came with the Reagan administration after Carter was no longer president.
0: I mean, pretty much the minute Reagan went into office, the uh, act placed in law by Carter was reversed. Mm -hmm. And most of these community based healthcare facilities were only getting 75 or 80% of what they should have been getting.
1: According to an article by Daniel Johanna, quote, The current decentralized mental health system has benefited middle-class people with less severe disorders preferentially, leaving the majority of people with severe mental illness who are either poor or have more severe illness with inadequate services and a more difficult time integrating into a community. Factors such as high arrest rates for drug offenders, lack of affordable housing, and underfunded community treatment might better explain the high rate of arrests of people with severe mental illness. I mean, the truth is we can't depend on uh, outpatient facilities.
0: Yeah, they, they don't provide the support that's needed to prevent the situation we're in.
1: Well, for people at least with severe mental illness, and though it's been shown to help, again, people with minor illnesses or acute illnesses, people with long-term mental health disorders are really struggling to integrate into society.
0: There's a level of consistency and structure required to their care that isn't available in most of these other facilities we've mentioned.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
0: And as a result of this deinstitutionalization combined with inadequate and underfunded community-based mental health care programs, the criminal justice system is forced to provide the highly structured and supervised environment we're talking about for this minority of the severely mentally ill population this is corroborated by the american psychological association who states that in 2010 16 percent of the prison population in the united states was diagnosed with a severe mental illness but they caution that the key word here is diagnosed And the inadequate mental health resources of prisons may mean that a percentage of the population is both undiagnosed and untreated, but probably suffering from a severe mental illness.
1: Thanks for listening every week and being a part of this podcast with us. I know we've um, been doing a lot of transitions here ourselves, sound changes, tone changes, different styles. Uh, If you have any input, let us know if there's anything specific you want to hear, if you like something we've done, if you don't like something we've done.
0: Yeah, we're exploring what this show can be at its best Mm. and we really want to hear what you think is our best so follow us on social media on twitter and instagram at tyler and france f-r-a-n-t-z and let us know what do you like what do you not like and we hope to with your help develop a show that is something we're all proud of and
1: until next week have a great night bye